This is Saved by the 90s, the show about 90s films and the pop culture surrounding them. I'm your host, Adam Patterson. I'm joined today by the talented Mr. Ken Bakley, and I'd like to welcome you to August 1997. Think of all the mature, responsible things you could be doing. Helping old ladies cross the street, proudly maintaining your yard, hanging with your folks, or cleaning your room. But get real. You'd rather be playing video games. You can rent them from Blockbuster. They've got more of the coolest new Nintendo, Super Nintendo, and Sega Genesis games for rent than anyone in the world. So dudes, why not get your games from Blockbuster? It's the mature thing to do. Although the comic book industry was still struggling to recover after the crash of 96, one of the few publishers that weathered the storm was Image Comics, led by Todd McFarlane, an ambitious artist who worked for both DC and Marvel before starting his own media empire. Image wanted to set itself apart from mainstream publishers by nurturing the independence of its creators and presenting darker, more adult-themed stories, which naturally appealed to adolescents such as myself. One of its first titles was born from the high school notebooks McFarlane kept over the years, which he developed into the wildly popular anti-hero tale that is Spawn, with issue one releasing in May of 1992. Five years later, the popularity of Spawn has reached a fever pitch, with action figures released by McFarlane's popular toy label, an HBO cartoon series released in May, and of course, a live-action film. Imagine a substance with the power to destroy humanity. Imagine a creature insane enough to use it. Imagine a hero on the verge of creation. From flesh to steel. You must visualize your objective. From blood to blade. Don't get cocky. You have a lot more to learn. From man to spawn. This summer, evil has a new enemy. Justice has a new weapon. And the world has a new hero spawn. Released August 1st, Spawn stars Michael Jai White as an elite mercenary who is killed but comes back from hell as a reluctant soldier of the devil. Now, Ken. Yes. Have you seen Spawn before? I have not. It's been on Netflix on and off basically forever, and I've always seen it there, but I had no desire to actually watch it until we decided to do it for the show. Yeah, this was one that I was super excited for when I was a kid. When this when this was coming out, I was beyond excited that they were making a Spawn movie. Now, I was really, really into comic books during this time period. Uh, the I was just obsessed with collecting every type of comic book I I could, and I think that maybe I was part of the the whole comic book boom thing that was happening in the mid part of the nineties. And what happened was they started during this comic book boom, they started releasing so many number ones and collector's editions and like foil covers and all of this stuff. And then there were so many publishers that were coming out that basically the bubble just burst and you had all these collectors buying up these number ones and these hologram covers and stuff. And they realized like these aren't worth anything they're not going to be worth anything because so many people are on board with this and image comics which was born out of that you know boom that was happening during the time 
And they were kind of the ones that uh, they stuck with it. They Spawn was like nothing else at the time. Back then, you had your super indie publishers who were putting out some kind of some dark stuff, some non-superhero stuff. But Image Comics, you had like Dark Horse Comics too, and they were they were putting out really not superhero stuff so much as just darker stories like Hellboy. Mm-hmm. And then you had your Image Comics, which they come out with Young Blood, and then they come out with Spawn. And Spawn was just so so wildly different than what we were used to with superhero stories at the time. It was much darker. And I remember one of the big things was the the books themselves. They were they were printed on like full color glossy paper, which was not really common at the time. Like there was this this level of higher quality to the books. Mm-hmm. Now I actually wasn't really into Spawn uh, back then. I didn't read Spawn. I had a few issues, but I wasn't too into the character or the story. But nonetheless, I was super excited just to see you know, a comic book character make it onto the big screen. Cause as we'll discuss today, there's, there weren't really that many superhero movies back then uh, that were coming out. So I was super excited for spawn. I did not, I saw it in the theater with my cousin. I did not like it. I was not a fan of spawn coming out of it, even as a kid. So I kind of knew going in, revisiting it now that I probably was not going to be a big fan of Spawn. Yeah, you can tell pretty early on watching this that this is a pretty primitive entry in the modern superhero movie because there is no unified idea about how you approach this material. There is the sense that you have Spawn as kind of a darker, more uh, unconventional entry as a comic book character, but there's also this idea that's sort of born into the culture that because comic book characters and scenarios are so inherently absurd, you have to treat it with a degree of absurdity. And the way the movie tries to reconcile those two ideas is a complete mess. Absolutely. It's the thing is, so this is directed by Mark A.Z. DeBay. This movie was... You know, I seem to remember even back then thinking like, this does not look very good. Like CG laden. This movie is so full of CG. I mean, right from the opening titles, when you watch those opening titles now, you're just like, oh my God, this looks so bad. This looks like some kind of uh, straight to VHS horror movie. The opening titles are incredible. (laughs) The, the 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 computer generated like really bad looking kind of 3D graphics a column of fire and that all the words are kind of going through and then they sort of come on the screen and vibrate so you can't even read them i feel like this is in and of itself a union violation on several counts just because <laughs> you can't actually read any of the titles yeah, so you have this this intro that sort of sets everything up at the beginning, and then you go into the the opening credits. And in those opening credits, you're seeing clips from the movie that are playing <laughs> during yes. the opening credits. 
So, uh, first of all... Because this is a, a network sitcom airing on Friday nights yeah. in 1987. Uh, why? Why would any movie ever do that? That drives me insane. You know, the Mission Impossible movies do that. And I can't... I know that that's because it's like a sort of a tradition at this point, but it just drives me crazy. Like, no, I don't want to see clips of the movie that I'm about to watch. It's like uh, sometimes you go to the movies and they have that basically uh, an EPK of like the director talking about the movie interspersed with clips from filming the movie before you've even seen a frame oh. of it. Oh, no, I would not. It's I would not awful. stand for that. It is so awful. Like, I, would, I just, I, I just tune it. I just like stare at the ground. I think that's what um, Gene Siskel said he would do during trailers. So he would just stare at the ground. I think I got I got that a couple times. I just stared down until it was over. The the flashbacks and the clips that occur, they don't just happen in the in the intro. They happen all throughout the movie. As if you forgot what you just saw five minutes ago, they replay things over and over and over again. And I don't know if it is because they think the audience is not gonna put it together or if they're just trying to pad out the runtime. But that was another thing that would drive me crazy. The editing in this movie is so horrible that they just they keep going back to scenes that we've already seen and playing them again. And I'm just like, all right, I, I, I understand. Like, I, I can see we, we just saw this. Why we, are we, we revisiting fundamentally it? understand all of the uh, intricate plot elements in this densely plotted tome, of course. Yeah, so you have Michael Jai White as Spawn, a.k.a. Al Simmons. And then you have John Leguizamo, for some reason, playing the Violator. I'm not sure... It feels like a violation. Like, yeah. It feels like some like the entire approach of the character feels like a tonal violation in a movie that does not have a tone anyway. <laughs> I mean, one one thing that I'll give them credit for is that the the makeup effects were pretty good like the violators costume was pretty good and the spawn outfit the costume of spawn looked pretty decent and i like i did like the way that the mask would sort of form over his face uh even if i felt like he went without the mask for way way too long in the movie again there was so much cg used and it was some of the worst CG maybe I've ever seen in a movie, especially the hell scenes. Especially from a major studio. Yeah. Like, so there there are scenes where he goes, to, so to, to just step back a little bit, as we said in the, the synopsis and in the trailer, you know, uh, Michael Jai White plays this, this mercenary who gets killed. He gets, he goes to hell. And then this demon essentially says, I can send you back to see your wife again, but you have to be a soldier for me. You have to be a hell spawn. And he's like, yeah, sure. I'll do that. And he gets sent back and sort of becomes this, this anti-hero. Although they, they don't really do anything with the spawn character in this movie. They pretty much just have him seeking revenge on the people responsible for his death, mainly Martin Sheen, who played the character of Jason Wynn. Can we talk about Martin Sheen in this movie? Yeah, uh, we can talk about it if we're 
if the discussion is going to be revolving around how horrible he was in this, because uh, I don't really get what I, I mean. Was he just phoning this in? Was this just a paycheck for him? I'm not. I I think the thing that you come back with every major performance in this movie is that there is no fundamental guidance on how this movie is supposed to feel. He played it very over the top. He was uh, almost overacting in every in every scene that he was in. And there's just so much, there's so much bad going on in this movie that it's, it's hard to really enjoy any of it on any level. Like the action scenes were so silly and terrible looking. I, I mentioned earlier that I thought that the suit looked good. The suit in action when someone was fighting in the suit, does not look good at all. It, it looks, does not. It looks very cumbersome and almost like you're watching an episode of Power Rangers. That's sort of what the fights look like. Yeah. The, the gunfights are not cool or satisfying at all. Again, the hell scenes are laughable. Like when he is uh, talking to that the demon, that big de- devil demon thing in hell uh malaboglia is its name that th- th- it's so bad i mean i i can't even imagine i don't understand how they saw that and they were like yeah that'll work let's 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 do that it doesn't even feel like a real movie it feels like deleted scenes from a very far-ranging, long-running television show where there's like early pilot scenes that take on one tone and then you kind of progress through the seasons and it goes through uh, different tones as it tries to work through different things with its characters and then ends up somewhere else. Basically, it feels like if you took all of the shifts that happened in MASH and condensed it into 90 minutes. (laughs) It really feels like, it does feel like a CW show, an early CW show, like Charmed or one of those with the effects. That That's sort of what it feels like. And the crazy thing is this movie had a $40 million budget, which for 1997, that's huge. Oh yeah, that's a considerable amount of money to spend on a, on a movie that doesn't really seem to have a built-in niche besides we're adapting this thing that is popular without, I feel, really understanding. Yeah, I don't know how much, I don't know how much involvement Todd McFarlane had on the production of this. Now, comparing the movie to the comic books and then also the TV show, there was an HBO show that ran... Uh, during this time, ran for three seasons. So, as I said, I never really read the comic books and maybe read a couple issues here and there. So, in preparation for this, I read the first two volumes of Spawn and I also watched the first season and a half of the show, which is on HBO Go, by the way, if you're interested. Um, and it, the movie follows the broad strokes of the the main storyline in the comic book and the show, but it really only kind of scratches the surface. It really only does sort of the surface level 
um, look at it. And, and even though, you know, you have a lot of stuff to con- sort of condense into a two hour movie, they could have done a way better job than, than what they did because it's so messy. Everything about this movie is very messy. Yeah. That's probably the best word to use. I would say if you're interested in the story of spawn and you want to start at the beginning, uh, starting with the TV show is actually a good idea because the, the TV show, I would argue now, again, I've only seen the, uh, maybe two or three episodes into the second season, the, it flows a lot better. And the, the sort of connective tissue between all the storylines is more cohesive in the show than in the comic books. So I would suggest maybe watching the show because it, it follows the comic books very closely and it's the animation style is very good. It's sort of that Batman, the animated series. It has a, a feel that a look that's very reminiscent of that. So it looks really good and it's a lot more violent and gratuitous than the comic books as well. They drop the F bomb in it and there's nudity and there's a lot of, of violence. And even watching this movie, you can tell that it wants to be far more violent than it is allowed to be. Yeah. I mean, that, that was sort of the, one of the big draws to spawn was it's edginess. Like this isn't like, this isn't your dad's superhero book, you know, like this is, this is edgy. And it, and it was, I mean, you're dealing with some very mature adult themes in, in the comic books, but a lot of that stuff gets stripped out of the movie and it's tonally it's dark, like, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really go that far into the, the, the source material to feel that. It's basic idea of how to represent edginess is a extremely on the nose new metal soundtrack. <laughs> oh yeah. You d- you got to have that. You got to have the new metal in there, man. Got to have a Marilyn Manson song on it. Yeah. And then of course, it's a 90s movie so you have to have the kid from Pet Cemetery in there as uh, Spawn's little buddy. <laughs> uh that kid that kid's great. There was one scene that I thought was hilarious. Um, Just so, one? Uh, well, one that I was thinking about, it, it, it sort of, I was thinking about it for a while after it happened and I just couldn't get over it. There was this scene where um, his wife, so, so basically when Spawn comes back, it's five years later. So even though he wants to see his wife, she's been, she's remarried and she actually marries his best friend. And then they have a child together. And in the comic books and in the, in the TV show, he loses his memory. So a big part of the story is him trying to figure out like who I am, who, who the, my wife is, who killed me. So that's like a big part of the, the TV show and the, the comic books, but they didn't, they didn't really do that in the movie. Um, but anyway, there was this one scene where they're fleeing. So um, his his wife and her new husband and their daughter are like fl- they're they're getting out, 
and they're they she they have a dog, and the guys just like leave the dog, and then they just leave the dog, like they don't bother just grabbing the dog and taking the dog. They leave the dog essentially on the side of the road when it would have taken them 10 seconds to pick the dog up and the dog leave. is basically a continuity error. I mean, it, it just, I'm like, what, what kind of monster does that? And, and the other, the other thing that I thought that I had to laugh at every time I saw it was these, these, these transitions that would happen involving these like floating crosses, these like floating CG crosses that would just like those fly. transitions really <laughs> bothered me. It would just like fly over the city, and it was just like, oh my goodness! It would just be like from one person walking into a room into another room, and they would have to put up this whole big production of floating geometric phenomena. Yeah, it was. Pretty rough. You won't be able to convince me that there isn't at least one point where that happens between shots in the same scene. <laughs> it probably does. <laughs> now, now we the version that we watched was the theatrical version. There was a director's cut that came out for this, uh, which I never saw. I can't imagine that a director's cut would really fix that much in this movie. It's just... Uh, uh, it's not very good. And then you and then you have this guy who appears and sort he's sort of like he's I guess he's like another hellspawn. He has that like blade thing, that sword thing. He like he, he's not a necessary character. I mean, he seems to exist only for exposition, but I'm not sure that we needed him since they didn't really develop him as a character and he doesn't really do much. He sort of fights with Spawn a little bit, but if Spawn's supposed to be this badass, you know, Hell Spawn, why, why do we need this this other guy, this knight? There's so many questions. Plus, every time I saw Michael Jai White on screen as as Spawn, I could only I could only think of this. Every single time, just the dynamite jingle was going through my head it nonstop. Up the experience. Yeah, it did make me go rewatch Black Dynamite afterwards, though. That's the that's one positive. And it's not something you can forget about because it's not just boring bad. It is transcendent. It is truly, truly awful. Uh, I, I, I was actually really excited to revisit this because it's been so many years, maybe maybe since it was in theaters i'm not sure if i ever saw it again since then but holy cow i'm looking over the imdb right now at the reviews section roger ebert gave this movie a positive review but really only because the visual effects are so overwhelmingly bizarre that it almost feels like some kind of surreal visual experience <laughs> All I can say is I I hope with the 2000 the the 2019 version that's coming out it's they're going to do it right cuz they can't make it worse. I f- yeah, I I think you're right. I I don't think that they could possibly make it worse than this. Jamie Foxx is playing Spawn in the new one, which uh could be good, I guess. The the thing about 
Spawn in general is it? It's it's not a it's really not a great story. You know, having read a good chunk of the comics now, and I'm going to continue reading it just to just to see if it gets any better. But it's not really anything special. Like it's pretty average. It's a cool looking character. Like he Spawn is cool looking with that red cape and the mask and everything, but. Other than that, it's uh, I don't know. It's it's a pretty average superhero type story. But he he's like, at least where I'm at now in the story, he's he's so reluctant to do anything. Most of the time, he just mopes around in an alley, and I'm just like, why am I even bothering with this? He, he, he Spawn is not that cool. Like he doesn't really do much. Very entertaining looking alleys in this movie. Yeah. Yep. If you're into alleys. Oh, yeah. If you're into alleys and uh, rooftops, specifically like one church rooftop, maybe check this out. Actually, yeah. don't. I Just <laughs> just rewatch The Crow instead because <laughs> I feel like The Crow does all this. And I'm not saying that The Crow is a good movie either, but I think that it, it kind of nails that you know, dreary goth, 90s goth vibe a lot better than than Spawn does. And now I'm on the trivia section of the IMDb page, and the only interesting thing on here thus far is that John Leguizamo ate actual worms in the scene where he eats I was, them. You know, I was wondering about that because... Allegedly, he eats actual wax worms. In the, in the scene, when you see it, they... They do seem real. Yeah, it it's a, basically a fluid motion. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't one of those deals face. where they cut away or they do a quick cut and replace them with fake ones. Like, you can see them moving around as he's stuffing it into his face. Hmm. Okay, well, that's another positive, I guess. Get to see John Leguizamo eat worms. At one stage, Tim Burton was going to direct this movie allegedly uh, that probably would have been better than mark az depe it's not like it could make the movie worse i mean looking at the this director's filmography he hasn't really done too much spawn was his first feature film he did a music video for herbie hancock before this and then afterwards he's just done a lot of tv movies and stuff so it's kind of just his one thing. It's like the guy that uh the guy that they handed two hundred million dollars to make forty seven Ronin and that was yeah. his only credit. Yeah. I mean the uh he mainly was a visual effects guy, so he did the visual effects for uh like the shallows and he did visual effects for Jurassic Park and Terminator two and Ghost Flintstones. So he worked on a lot of very effects laden movies that were known for their visual effects. Hunt for Red October, Back to the Future Part 2, The Abyss. So he worked at ILM. Directed three different Garfield movies. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so he worked for uh, Industrial Light and Magic. So, you know, he has some uh he has some ability with the with the visual effects but yeah but he was directing yeah it didn't it didn't seem like he used those 
like what were they thinking with that like oh this guy's this guy worked on jurassic park in the abyss we should get him to direct this movie and then another guy was like another exec was like well wouldn't we want to have him do the visuals on it since that's what he does and they're like no 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 that you don't get it we want him to direct he'd be perfect and then they got him to direct and probably whatever he wanted to do just said no the entire time uh one other thing that i i wrote down in my notes here was ashtray i I really liked martin sheen's ashtray scorpion ashtray no that was pretty fun yeah i mean it's like maybe one of the coolest ashtrays i've seen it's it's a scorpion it's it's a bowl that has scorpions in it and then a tiny little ashtray in the middle of the scorpion bowl that's how you know you're you're an evil an evil uh dude there are scorpions you, you, present. You, if your boss calls you into his uh, his or her office and they have a scorpion bowl ashtray sitting on their desk, you know that things are not going to be good for you. Stay tuned for more Saved by the 90s after this quick commercial break. Batman and Robin, Ice Terror, Mr. Freeze launches a chilling strike. Blastwing Batman whips his massive cape to cut down the cold criminal. Now Robin comes with his Redbird cycle to put evil on ice as Batgirl blasts in to send Freeze to the cooler. Batman and Robin vehicles come with figures Blastwing Batman sold separately. Aside from the Superman series, which saw its last entry in 1986 with the abysmal Superman 4 The Quest for Peace, and the more recent Batman films, Batman and Robin just hit theaters in June, Superhero adaptations haven't yet seen the saturation we see in cinemas today. However, the individuals responsible for shaping the first major superhero movie wave remained active in the industry. Among them was Richard Donner, director of the first two Superman movies. His film Conspiracy Theory, released on August 8th, is the subject of our next review. Jerry Fletcher has theories. The whole Vietnam War was fought over a bet that Howard Hughes lost to Aristotle Onassis. Some would call his theories crazy. You're telling me that NASA is going to kill the President of the United States with an earthquake. It's not exactly the kind of thing a Secret Service agent can, like, just throw himself on top of. He writes them in his newsletter. This is our third issue this year, Conspiracy Theory. He sends them out, and she is the only one he trusts. Now, one of his theories is true. Only he doesn't know which one, but his enemies do. Conspiracy Theory, directed by Richard Donner. Mel Gibson stars as a man obsessed with conspiracy theories who becomes a target after one of his theories turns out to be true. Unfortunately, in order to save himself, he has to figure out which theory it is. Now, that synopsis is a little bit misleading because that's not really... It's not really how it is. It right? really isn't. Which is a, a little, I mean, I've seen this movie many, many times. I've seen, I saw this movie in the theater at the cheap seats back in the day. It was like $2 or something to go see a movie at the cheap seats. And I saw this with my dad and I, I loved it at the time. But looking at it now, I realize like that's the synopsis is way off. I mean, even the trailer, they're like, oh, he writes this newsletter. He's this conspiracy theorist guy. And one of them turns out to be true. And he just has to figure out which one. But it's uh, none of them. Like the the reason they're after him isn't about any of them. It It doesn't make the movie 
any worse or anything like that. It uh, it doesn't really change my thoughts on the movie. I just think it's an interesting observation that the the whole kind of premise that they hook you in with is not really what this movie is. It's kind of hard to reveal that though without giving parts of the resolution away. You're right. It's probably they did the best they could, I guess. Anyway, what do you think of conspiracy theory? From the beginning, I was not really on board with it because the very first scene of this movie is Mel Gibson driving people around in a taxi cab, screaming inane conspiracy theories at them. He basically plays a Twitter timeline. <laughs> uh, and I was not ready for that. I was not on for that because it felt too much like real Mel Gibson going around spouting insane conspiracy theories. Well, especially because I just, just this weekend, realized I, I started reading about this QAnon thing. So it seems very appropriate that we're watching conspiracy theory when there's this like new emergence of conspiracy theorists that are coming into prominence now with this QAnon business. Yeah, I, I don't wonder if kind of this whole conspiracy theorist network of people sitting around on forums and uh, sharing wild speculation about things. I do wonder if that's not really harmless anymore because with the way that there are certain movements that can come together and be realized online, I think we've seen that it can lead to uh, real-world violence. Absolutely. I think that saying things like that is dangerous. I think that with this this whole QAnon thing that we're seeing now, I think that that has the potential to be very dangerous. And I think that it's also interesting because as I was watching this movie, I was thinking to myself, I would like to see a sequel to this movie and see what his life is like now in the in the age of the four chans and because I, I feel like over the yeah. years since this came out, conspiracy theories have only grown in size. I mean, you have it, it, now you have these large forums for people to discuss their theories and expand on them and theorize and that they've just blown out of proportion. And I would like to see now, he does mention, they do mention the internet in this movie and he says that he stays off of it because he thinks the government is tracking the internet and all of that stuff. But I have a feeling that Jerry would be at this point in 2018. I think that he would be on the internet. It would be, I think he'd be scrounging those forums and, watching the uh, Alex Jones videos and writing about lizard he, men. He would have been able to start a new version of that newsletter that he talks about, the newsletter with five subscribers, except it would have been online and it would have had a much more substantial reach. Yeah. Uh, so in that regard, I almost would like to see Conspiracy Theory 2. I want to see that come out. I like the, uh, I like movies about conspiracy theories. I liked... I liked this movie overall. I I did too. Eventually, was, I kind of came around to it. You know, it's 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 fine. Uh, Julia Roberts is great in it. 
Patrick Stewart plays the the bad guy, and he's always great when he happens to play a bad guy. And Mel Gibson's pretty good in it too. He he does. Uh, I think he does a really good job of of straddling the line of being likable, but also being very unstable. Yeah, there is that line between how effectively comic Mel Gibson's character is, just his entire demeanor of muttering to himself and making giant proclamations about government secrets to literally anyone who's within the, his general vicinity. Yeah, and I think that uh, for the mo- for the most part, the film works pretty well. It's there's a few light action scenes, some explosions in there, and it, it it's all right. I, I don't have a lot to say about conspiracy theory. It's it's a movie that I've seen many times, and every time I see it, I'm just like, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> it's like I don't love it, but you know, it's okay. There's a, there is a lot to admire, though. There are some vaguely interesting choices in terms of cinematography. Uh, there's some very creatively lit and staged shots, like the first scene when Mel Gibson is tortured by Patrick Stewart. Like, yeah. it's It's ingenious in a way. It is efficiently done and there's this very fun if vaguely uncoordinated Carter Burwell score which almost reflects the fact that my primary complaint with this film even though I liked it overall is that it does not exactly determine the way it wants to approach Mel Gibson's character if he's this tragic figure or he's this broadly comic figure yeah, um, I, I think that that's definitely one thing that they probably would approach differently had this movie come out now. I feel like that they would have they would have dove into the the mental illness angle a little bit more because in this mo- in this one, like they, they don't really they don't really dive too deep into it. They're just like Julia Roberts is just like this guy's crazy, and that's pretty much as far as we go into it. So we don't we don't really know. I mean, we know that he went through a lot of he went through experimentation, you know, government experimentation. And we also don't it's not it's never really clear if he is if he remembers all of that stuff and he was just keeping it from uh Julia Roberts because it seems like he's sort of aloof to what's going on for a long time until really until they get to the, the barn where he reveals his, his connection with Julia Roberts and sort of what happened involving the death of her father and his connection to that. So it's never, at least to me, it's never really clear what he knows from the onset and what sort of comes back to him when they get there. It does feel like the character at the beginning of the movie and the character about midway through the movie have very little to do with each other. I guess I could understand it more if 
we were to believe that his memories were coming back. Maybe if they established from the beginning that there was a time in his life where he's missing things, like something happened and he can't remember parts of his past, and those elements start coming back to him as he works with Julia Roberts to uncover this mystery, maybe it would make a little bit more sense, but it just seems like he's he's either deliberately deceiving her or he doesn't know what's going on. And either way, it doesn't really work because at some point he seems very lucid and sane and figures it all out. The movie doesn't really seem to know the answer to that question, which does limit it. It's effectively told from Julia Roberts' perspective. It's told from her character's perspective. We know what we know when she knows it, with some exceptions. But for the main thrust of the movie, we don't really know much beyond her figuring things out. A lot of the information we learn about Jerry comes from her asking him questions. I did love that scene when he's on the wheelchair going down the stairs, though. Oh, no, that's (laughs) fantastic. (laughs) Interestingly, this movie was rated R. Um, Now, I said that I did see this in the theater. My dad made an exception. I really wasn't allowed to go see rated R movies too much back then, but he he made an exception because he had the idea that this wasn't going to be a very overly violent or sexual movie, and... To me, it's it's very surprising that this got an R rating at all. I feel like yeah. if this were to come out today, it would get a PG-13, no problem. There's maybe two or three... I mean, you have to basically boil it down to individual shots that might have gotten an R rating. And I saw it earlier today, so I kind of remember it. There's maybe two or three shots that seem slightly more violent than what's routinely getting passed in a PG-13. But even then... It's like PG-13 by now standards. And it hadn't been too far removed by 1997 that PG-13 was a much more flexible rating. Yeah, I mean, Spawn was PG-13. And in a lot of ways, I thought that that was just as violent as this movie. Now, I think maybe the the thing that did it was the blood. There was... Yeah, it's, a, a there, scene. There, there's less violence in conspiracy theory but it is real world violence it is yeah yeah definitely have more more blood in that, or at least human colored blood not green spawn blood <laughs> yeah yes everybody in this movie has green spawn blood as well it's just <laughs> it's they're they're in the same universe uh, that's a conspiracy theory so are you a fan of uh, richard donner and his his filmography I guess generally, I don't really think of him as a terribly stylistic director, but I do. But he is a particularly important director just on the contributions he has made as a whole. Yeah, like when you, like with with Richard Donner, at least to me, it's not like you could see a movie and be like, oh, that's a Richard Donner movie. You know, like. He doesn't seem to have a signature style to him. He just seems to get hired to make movies and he makes that movie to the best of his ability. Like that's, that's pretty much what he does. It comes out pretty good. I mean, he's almost like a George Roy Hill 
I guess yeah. you think about somebody like George Roy Hill who did not have a specific trademark or you can, couldn't point to something and say, that's a George Roy Hill trademark, but he's consistently, over the course of a career, turned out movies that were appreciated and had a legacy. And I think that's maybe Richard Donner's a little bit more genre, but at the same time, he's more about, in the general public sense, the collective sum of his contributions rather than being able to point between two movies and say what really defines them is all those Donner trademarks. And I feel like Conspiracy Theory was probably one of his lesser movies. It, it was, if I remember correctly, it was not very well received. Um, and it it looks like it made it made its money back. So that's good. It had a $75 million budget and it's gross in the U S was about 76 million. So, so it probably lost money because yeah, I mean, when these things go, yeah, when you factor in, it probably had a $75 million marketing budget. Uh, so it probably did lose money. It's cumulative worldwide gross was about 137. So yeah, 137 on a 75 is eh. Yeah, no, it's not great. And I, I know that critics were not very high on this one either. I think at the end of the day, it's an average action thriller at best. It's There's not a lot here to, to really hold on to. I, As I said, I've seen this movie probably four, five times, and... Every time I watch it, it's almost like I'm watching it for the first time because I retain so little of this movie, Uh, and and which is kind of the most disappointing thing for me is that the like the twist, like when you discover what the conspiracy is and all of that stuff, it doesn't really amount to much. Like it's not that cool of a twist. I think it would be a lot cooler if it was one of the items in his newsletter and they had to follow up on each of those things and figure out which one of the articles was the one that he was being targeted for rather than them just being like, Oh, well, uh, yeah, we've been looking for you and finally we found you and and now we're going to bring you back in. Ultimately, I feel like it was a bit of a letdown. I think there is something interesting to be said with how this movie has aged, especially watching it now. And even watching it as a movie, I do think you get to appreciate Donner's abilities just as a director, as an artist, when you're not connecting him to, like, oh, this is Superman, or oh, this is, you know, the Goonies, or oh, this is Lethal Weapon. If you do watch one of his movies disconnected from a franchise, I think there is a little bit more to say about how he can guide even like really wide-ranging content like this, or at least try to. And there is something to be said about a particular robustness that's carried throughout it, even if it's not particularly consistent in terms of tone or even characterization. Yeah. I will say it makes very good use of uh, the song Can't Take My Eyes Off You. That does come in as a pretty solid thread throughout. I appreciated yeah. that. Uh, it was okay. 
sometimes. I think I there know. are ways that movies do use songs that make it completely generic, but there is a way and a specificity that Donner uses it uh, just from a handful of appearances and then bringing it full circle towards the end that I think is maybe almost deceptively simple, but yeah. I did have a connection to its use that I don't have when any other movie is just like, Oh, here's a song we're going to play three times. Yeah. I mean, it is a little on the nose, you know, but, but it almost earns being on the nose by the end. Especially that, that opening scene when he's like essentially stalking her and mm-hmm. tunes into the radio and she's playing it. Yeah, it oh. almost earns how on the nose it is. Yeah, I will I, I will agree with that. It annoyed me a little bit when he was singing it at the end, when he was all drugged up, but it was still fine. It was okay. It was fun. All right, that is Conspiracy Theory. So while the popularity of the superhero genre hit a low in the late 90s, there were a number of comic book adaptations based on edgier titles, such as the aforementioned Spawn, along with Barbed Wire, Tank Girl, The Crow 1 and 2, Time Cop, The Mask, and Judge Dredd, just to name a few. Our next film, however, is one of the few exceptions and possibly a reason why the superhero film hadn't yet reached prominence. Based on the DC Comics character and released August 15th, this is Steel. The weapons of tomorrow terrorizing our cities today. Now, to protect those who can't fight back. The gang's still messing with him? Worse than ever. One man must stand up for the people and become a new breed of hero with a will of iron, a heart of gold, and a body of steel. It's hammer time. Shaquille O'Neal, Steel. Don't tell Grandma. Shaquille O'Neal stars as John Henry Irons, a weapons designer for the military. When his project to create weapons that harmlessly neutralize soldiers is sabotaged, he leaves in disgust. After witnessing gangs using his weapons on the street, he uses his brains and his Uncle Joe's junkyard know-how to fight back, becoming a real man of steel. (laughs) Mm. Oh boy. So, I will say, first off, I never saw Steel. This was a first-time watch for me, because when this came out, it was panned so hard. I was like, I don't even want to, I don't want to bother with this one. But coming out of it, I, I would say that it's better than Spawn. <laughs> I think, I think I had a better time with Steel than I did with Spawn. I would say so too. I don't know if that makes it a necessarily better movie. It makes it a more interesting movie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it felt very generic superhero movie of the time. Like back, back when they still really weren't sure how to handle superhero movies. Oh boy. Does this movie not know how to handle superheroes? <laughs> it's just, man, this movie just flounders. <laughs> throughout. I mean, it's and if just, only that were the least of its problems. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a bit rough. It's a little bit of a rough movie, but you know, it, it was kind of, it was kind of fun. I thought that the Shaq did a better job than I expected. I wouldn't say he was necessarily good in it, but 
he wasn't horrible and there were there were enough one-liners in it he, that yes uh, he handled hilariously bad dialogue with the dignity yeah i enjoyed i enjoyed some of the one-liners every time a person of color talks in this movie a black person or a hispanic person every time they open their mouth and talk you can tell the dialogue was written by maybe the whitest man who ever lived yeah yeah absolutely it's interesting this because the character of steel was a relatively new character this this was a character that was created during the death of superman which was a huge thing that happened i think I want to say like 92, 93, somewhere around there. This was like a huge event. Superman died. And then there were these, there were several other replacements that came to sort of take, take on the mantle of Superman and steel was one of them. So this was like a relatively new character in the, in the DC universe. And this movie was actually going to be part of a series. They were going to make a whole death of Superman series and steel was going to be part of that, but they couldn't put the other ones together and, and they just were like, all right, well, we just got to get this one out. So they released just this one as its own standalone thing. And I don't know if that was detrimental to it. Uh, I have a feeling that regardless of whether or not there were other ones, this one was just still going to be like this and still not be very good. As far as Shaq's representation of, of the character, John Henry Irons seems pretty accurate to the comic books. At one point I know in the comic books, his skin actually turns to steel, but I think that that was a temporary thing that they did in the storyline. Judd Nelson plays the villain in this, Nathaniel Burke, who was not in the comic books. He was a character created just for this film. Generic, pretty generic character. Uh, I mean, Judd Nelson's pretty good at playing a bad guy, like a scuzzy, slimy, you know, arms dealer kind of guy. No, he fits it. Yeah, he does the best he can. He does the best he can with what he was given. So Shaq plays this John Henry Irons character who's this uh, genius weapons manufacturer for the government. And he works with Susan Sparks, who's played by Annabelle Gish, or sorry, Annabeth Gish, uh, and then Nathaniel Burke, played by Judd Nelson. And there's an accident that happens because Judd Nelson's character, he just he cranks up the power way too high on one of their one of their weapons and it causes a building to explode and it, it makes Annabeth Gish's character, Susan, uh, it, it puts her in a wheelchair. Uh, she becomes a paraplegic and Burke ends up getting, I guess, dishonorably discharged. So he goes out on his own and starts working with there this. There is weirdly little. Yeah. So he goes and he starts working with this arms dealer that he knows who is, he owns, he, they, they, I guess they make arcade machines, although it doesn't really make sense because like, what does he make the video games or does he just build the cabinets? I'm not sure what, what that's all about because in 
the main arcade that's a front for this weapons dealing operation, you see all these video games and they're all different publishers and all different developers. So it's like, I don't really understand what are they trying to say that he made all those games or that he's just building the cabinets or what? Like, I'm not sure how that all fits, but it really doesn't fit. (laughs) That's the thing about this movie is that a lot of details or even just entire subplots don't fit. This really feels like it was written by a screenwriting instructor who would be telling students like you have to have the dramatic, you know, three act plot. And then you have to have the comedic B plot that kind of comes in and comes back at the end. So there is this entire like sitcom subplot about John Henry Irons uh, grandmother trying to open a <laughs> soul food hot cuisine fusion restaurant which complete with the like sitcom trope of trying to make a souffle, but every time you try to make a souffle, somebody makes a loud noise and it never and it deflates. Yes. <laughs> that that really is one of the subplots. And then is it his brother? Is it the kid? Is that uh, who is the kid? What is their relation? I don't remember. <laughs> I literally just watched this today and I I don't know if it was ever made clear who that who the kid is, but anyway, there's this kid that he's very close to who ends up getting a job at this arcade for some reason and I thought that they were going to do something with that, you know, like oh man, like this this little kid that he knows getting mixed up in this arcade that's that's being used as a front for this this enormous. I mean, when you see that back room for the first time, you're like, "Holy crap, there's like a hundred employees back here doing boxing up these weapons and putting them in these arcade machines and stuff. And I thought that they were going to do something with that where, Oh no, the kid is getting, he's getting mixed up in this, uh, this arms dealing stuff, but they don't really, they don't really do anything with it. A lot of things in this movie are just background business that accidentally wound up in the foreground. And plus, this kid is like 13 years old. What are they doing giving him a job? Like, that's that's got to be against the law. You can't be hiring a kid to work for you that's, that's that young. Child labor laws. The script is really astonishing in how little it thinks about any of this. And how it crafts its entire finale, its entire emotional climax around... Let's go back to the B plot. The restaurant opened. Yeah, so Annabeth Gish is Shaq decides to uh, she's she's at like a VA hospital or something and it just so happens that she gets transferred to one in his hometown. So, he goes and he picks her up, literally picks her up and takes her to this junkyard and says, "You know what? We're going to make weapons." And we're, it's going to be, there are going to be weapons that don't kill people. They just subdue people. And we're going to take the guns off the streets because it's getting crazy out there. So then that's when they build the whole, the, the steel suit, which 
I gotta, I gotta say the suit is horrendous, horrendous looking. It's so awful. And the funny thing is, in the opening credits, they make a point to say, they give a credit to the person that that designed the costume. So it's this like steel costume designed by blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, oh boy. But you bet. That that had to be contractual, (laughs) like before anything had been designed. It looks so bad. I mean, it's funny. Like, you know, you have your, these big, um, these big, conventions in this country you have like dragon con and comic con and all of these and you have a lot of all these cosplayers and the costumes that i see even like the average looking ones that you see at these conventions are leaps and bounds better than what they did (laughs) for steel it's so bad it just looks it's like chintzy and cheap and plasticky no yeah it looks like some kind of neo-renaissance fair. The mask is so goofy looking and the, like the hammer that he doesn't really even use as a hammer. He just uses it as a gun the whole time. I thought he was going to do some cool stuff with the hammer, but he, he just shoots. He just shoots it, shoots that hammer. I, I don't think anyone in this movie knew what hammers were. Yeah, my favorite thing about what happens in this movie, because so many things happen in this movie, is that everybody is just so unaffected by even the most insane things that people say or do. Like, everybody just... (laughs) Deadpan reacts to everything because this movie's plot is running on such a tight leash that there is so much thought given to moving from clearly defined beat to beat that at no point in this movie does anyone ever stop to reflect upon anything that's happening. Yeah. It's so funny when they first discover that these weapons have made their way out of the government and are being used by criminals on the street. uh, It just so happens that, that Shaq and his little friend are on a ride along, I guess with a, a police officer that they know that, they seem to try to establish her as like a, a character that's going to be in the movie for a while, but she's definitely only in that one scene. And they see these weapons being used, these really high-tech laser pulse rifle things, and they show no emotion whatsoever when they see them. <laughs> They're not freaking out like they should be. And yet none of it is as good as when people just out in public see steel being steel and they have at the most mild surprise. (laughs) Uh, One thing that I will say, I I thought that the, the pulse weapon thing, I thought that that looked pretty good. Um, Not the actual weapon itself. That looked very fake and awful, but the, the effect, like the whole pulse effect. And then, the resulting whatever it hit, like it it flips a car. And uh, particularly there's a scene where somebody shoots it at the side of a a train car and it like dents it in and then pushes it over. And I thought that that actually all looked pretty decent effects wise, but uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the rest of it, not, not so much. 
particularly just steel and his gadgets. They all looked really bad and hokey. The, the grappling hook thing looked so ridiculous. <laughs> oh my goodness. Judd Nelson was not that interesting of a villain either. Like he just, he was just such a bland generic villain. And the best, the best part was at the end when they, when they thwart the bad guys and get the guns off the street, he's just like, okay, we're done. And then that was it. <laughs> they just hung it up. Move movie over steel. It just steel hangs steel. it up and he never, he's never going to fight crime again. He's just, he was there to do his thing and he did it. And then that's it. Now it's done. Got to admire a self packaging movie, I guess. It's still better than Spawn, though. It is. Uh, I'm just looking at the uh, box office mojo page and how on opening weekend uh, its gross was so low that they're not even sure if there were movies that made more in between. It's not even ranked. It falls below number 15, and they don't know if there might have been movies in between <laughs> that made more, I guess, that because they just can't find all of the information it's just it, it doesn't even have a number it's just a little hyphen a little dash it's like number 14 face off number 15 good burger dash steel <laughs> oh boy it it did have an estimated budget of 16 million dollars it says on imdb that the opening weekend it made 870 million I'm sorry, 870,000. 870,000. <laughs> it's not even... It's, it is. It, it just came out and it was in 1,260 theaters. That was, a, that was a wide release. Yeah, but still, this, uh, looking at it, widest release that weekend, Air Force One at 3,000. Oh, wow. So... Less than half. Uh, following week goes from $870,000 to $191,000. Presumably that was it. According to IMDb, the total gross was $1.7 Yeah, I can't even find any international numbers on this, presumably. It, yeah, it may not have even come out negligible to non-existent yeah. overseas grosses. It may not have come out overseas. Although, I mean, maybe the market has changed, but typically superhero movies do better internationally than domestically. I would say this was this could not be a rule that you would apply to steel for yeah. numerous <laughs> reasons. <laughs> probably, probably not. Probably not. And now but, I'm looking at the international release page. Uh, it may have received theatrical releases up to and including Kuwait, Singapore, and Brazil, and then every other country it went direct-to-video. It's sufficiently self-contained that it's not like they were planning on there being a sequel, but at the same time, boy, did this not do anything. Yeah, definitely definitely not. Uh, it's, it's directed by Kenneth Johnson, who he did short circuit two, 
and he did a bunch of the Alien Nation uh, movies, TV movies. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Alien Nation, but that was a big, was a big series for a while there. And that's pretty much it. He just did a lot of TV stuff. So not much of a filmography to speak of. And we can kind of see why. I'm still pretty convinced that he probably teaches screenwriting way more than he's writing things. Because this was like... (laughs) such a painful exercise in how movies quote should be structured. I like the scene when Richard Roundtree goes and gives the guy the publisher's clearinghouse envelope and he goes, I'm going to be a decamillionaire <laughs> because I don't think I've ever heard of it referred to as a decamillionaire before. I never really heard a lot of the pre, uh, the the specific numeral prefixes before millionaire and billionaire until recently, when someone said with complete exhausted resignation, Jeff Bezos is the world's first centibillionaire. <laughs> uh, have you ever heard decamillionaire used? No, before? no, I yeah, I know, I because I remember with exact clarity the scene you're talking about because it was like I'm gonna be a decamillionaire, and I thought what. <laughs> Yeah, like, who says that? Did you just say? (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's just, it's a weird thing to hear someone say. A lot of the things in this movie are weird things for people to say and do. It's just, there's nothing cohesive about how anybody acts. It's pretty ridiculous. I, I like the, uh, I like his junkyard hangout, though, and I think that it's funny how quickly they got that set up. Like, this is like this sophisticated lair that that Annabeth Gish helps set up. And it's got, like, a hidden door and stuff in this, like, area for him to hide his bike. And she seems to set that up in, like, three days. With, with uh, Richard Roundtree's help, of course, as Uncle Joe. Yeah, there's really not much of a time frame on when anything's taking place in this movie. And I, and I also love when the cops are chasing him for the first time when he goes out and there's a helicopter that that's tracking him and he hides in the junkyard and he goes into his little, his little hidey hole in the secret door. And the, the helicopter pilot just goes, that's ah, just a bunch of junk. Let's get out of here. <laughs> like <laughs> you're not going to take a look <laughs> like you're hunting, you're hunting this man down. you, He's a wanted man. He is clearly hiding in a junkyard. Good place to hide. You're not going to send some guys in there. You're not going to send a couple unis in there to take a look. Uh, would have been would have been too expensive to shoot. After all, this movie's budget was only in the deca millions. <laughs> That's true. Oh boy, that's steel. I'm glad that I finally saw it. But uh, I can't say as I feel I missed much. GoldenEye 007, the first Bond adventure where you direct the action. Shot. 
by shot. By shot. Buy the Nintendo 64 system and the GoldenEye 007 game. Get the Smash It movie on video free. That's right, your very own copy of GoldenEye free. But only for a limited time. Hey dudes, did you pick up the awesome GoldenEye 007 for N64 this month? Well, if you did and you're having a tough time getting Bond through each of the 20 action-packed levels, then this month's Cheater's Corner is for you. To get all the weapons in the game, go to the Cheat menu and hit the following. Down, left, up C, right, L plus down, L plus left, L plus up, left C, left, and hold down C. Now, go into the game and save the world. Save the world. Princess Diana is seriously injured and two other people have died following a car crash in Paris. Police confirmed the we crash have reports has killed from Paris. The Diana Princess of Wales has been killed in a car accident and that her partner, Dodie Fired, has also been killed. They were apparently being pursued by paparazzi on two motorcycles. The Princess is dead across the country, across the world. Millions are trying to come to terms with the awful tragedy of Diana's untimely death. Uh, this all happened at midnight uh, Paris time uh, this evening. There's one of the motorcycles believed to have been uh, uh, trailing uh, at a high rate of speed, the Mercedes-Benz carrying... Um, Princess Diana. For all the viewers joining us at now 1 a.m. Eastern Time, New York Time in the United in States. In London, the September air is filled with grief and the rituals of remembering. Diana was separated from the royal family by divorce, but never from her larger family, the British people. She was our princess, wasn't she? The people's princess. It's as simple as that, really. On August 31st, the world was shocked to learn of the untimely death of Diana, Princess of Wales, who was involved in a car crash in Paris. Met with almost universal love and adoration the world over, Princess Diana used her royal status to pursue philanthropic endeavors, involving herself in dozens of charities, including raising awareness and advocating for ways to help people affected with HIV-AIDS, cancer, and mental illness. Her funeral was televised and watched by an estimated 2.5 billion people. I'm not sure I've ever seen such an enormous outpouring of grief when she passed away before or since, but it also brought up debates about personal privacy because at the time it was widely speculated that a car driven by some paparazzi caused the crash. Since then it was discovered that the driver of her vehicle was under the influence of alcohol mixed with prescription drugs. I remember when this happened, uh, it was just it was so devastating to the world. I mean, this was like such a huge event when this occurred. It was just nonstop all over the news. It was all that anyone could ever talk about. And it was just such a, a horrible tragedy. But it was really surprising to see how it affected people here in the United States. Like, I didn't expect it to have that much of an impact on people here in the States, but it really did. And I'm sure that it obviously affected people over in the United Kingdom much, much more, but uh, just the, how, how famous she was and how beloved she was and to see how it affected people who, you know, all the way over here who probably didn't even know that much about her. Uh, it was just really, really surprising. Yeah, there is this idea and you see it a lot whenever 
any kind of event happens with the British royal family is that Americans are still deeply infatuated, no matter how many royals come and go and get married, with this kind of notion of a close but distant line of people that carry tremendous cultural capital. Yeah. Uh, what do you, in because you weren't born until 1999, so Correct. what is your take on on this? Like, what have you learned or what, what were you taught about this event or what have you just, you know, read about or learned? I don't think anyone ever sat me uh, down in like a formal setting and taught me about Princess Diana dying, but it's absolutely something that you are very aware of just because she was such a defining cultural figure of the late 20th century. Uh, it's one of those events that you uh, that anybody lucid when it happened can vividly remember where they were when they heard it. And that's kind of how I contextualize these kinds of things in the sense that I can understand. There's a there's select handful, handful of events that feel like they define entire moments. This definitely was one of those events where when it was announced, uh, I think most people can remember exactly where they were when, when this was announced. Now, I, it didn't affect me as much because I was, I was pretty young when, when this happened and I was just trying to drink in the, the last moments of summer before school started again. But I still remember feeling the, the sadness and, and watching a lot of the stuff on uh, TV, especially the, the funeral. We did watch the funeral and I just remember being sort of in awe. Uh, it, I remember it was a, a lot of people were critical of the Royal family for, for televising the funeral. I remember that was like a, a thing uh, sort of a point of contention where people didn't think that it should have been televised, but it was. And I think that, I think that in the end it was, it was probably a good choice to do that. Yeah. I think there's also the thing to remember is that of course, by this point in the sort of mid late nineties, this was maybe the time where especially domestically in Britain, the Royal family was under the most scrutiny over its existence that it, basically ever had in recent decades like the the notion of how how much they were adhering to this very kind of stiff protocol and even just acknowledging that uh acknowledging the death and figuring out how to publicly respond to it and there was just this just this slow uh kind of creaking process to the point where there was a lot of scrutiny towards the royal family and maybe one of the only times in contemporary British history where the prime minister and exclusively political figure was seen as less polarizing than the royal family itself. In the response to Princess Diana's death to the entire world, looking for some kind of response to it and some kind of leader of the morning, uh, and is that uh, Tony Blair's approval ratings were like 
somewhere over 90% in Britain for like solid weeks at a time afterwards. Yeah, it was a, a tragic, tragic loss. And it, like I said, it did sort of spark this big debate about the paparazzi. And unfortunately, it didn't really do much. Uh, you saw them be under more scrutiny, certainly, but we still have TMZ and all of these other, you know, paparazzi outlets that are still invading celebrities privacy and you yeah, and and we're and we've arrived at the point where especially for on the same note unexpected celebrity deaths tmz has gotten to the point where it breaks all of these major stories because they have generally no regard for basic uh journalistic scrutiny or public decency which does on the which is bad but on but does get to the point where everyone else has to begrudgingly admit when there's a sudden celebrity death and TMZ is reporting it it's basically almost always accurate because they are completely without uh reverence to how you're supposed to vet a new story and seek accurate information through the appropriate channels. Right. I mean, a lot of what they do is just buy stolen or leaked footage and stuff like that. Like they'll, they'll have contacts that are, that will, you know, in, in police stations and nannies and every, every other source that they can find. And they'll pay top dollar for incriminating audio video pictures that that type of stuff to get to get this stuff and as a result you're right they usually they i mean they have a lot of scoops like anytime any kind of big scandal happens or something like that they're usually the ones to break it and uh i'm not saying that's a good thing it's it's just what it is i, I yeah. mean i i think that the public in general is just as much to blame if if we if if people didn't feed that beast it wouldn't exist you know so people people like celeb gossip and stuff and i i don't think that that's ever going to change first i got pinky then i got pinky i got pinky and patty in the same week what vanessa catch something teeny beeny baby i just now at McDonald's, your kids can get teeny beanie babies and a Happy Meal. Real Thai beanie babies in a mini size. To toss, tuck, or just plain love. One's in each $1.99 hamburger Happy Meal you buy your kids. This uh, teeny beanie baby itis, will she outgrow it? Not necessarily. <laughs> Our last film marked the English language debut from director Guillermo del Toro, who would go on to create a dark comic book adaptation of his own with the Hellboy series. Released on August 22nd, this is Mimic. Three years ago, a team of brilliant scientists found a way to stop a deadly disease. Now, the cure they created has taken on a life of its own. Sometimes an insect will evolve to mimic its predator. Whatever it becomes, it destroys. Yesterday, it became human. If that thing has been around, I know nobody's ever seen it. I think we have. Mira Sorvino. Jeremy Northam, Josh Brolin, Charles Dutton, Giancarlo Giannini, F. 
Murray Abraham. Mimic. Three years ago, entomologist Dr. Susan Tyler genetically created an insect to kill cockroaches carrying a virulent disease. Now the insects are out to destroy their only predator, mankind. Ken, what did you think about Mimic? This movie has things to say, I may be, about genetic engineering, except uh, they're thankfully nuanced. Well, (laughs) because there is this idea about creating something in order to do a good deed, which would be to eradicate the virus. But then there is this notion, but what have you done uh, when you have created this thing for your purpose? How do you grapple with the consequences of it? And just this whole idea that they had to... uh, go through and reconcile how complicated this entire notion is, is something I found interesting just beyond all of the effects and whatnot. Yeah. So you you have this very classic seven style intro. I feel like after seven came out, every movie wanted to do the, that, type of intro with the uh, things things looking very dirty and overlaid on top of each other and like news clippings and like mm-hmm. kind of gross imagery and stuff like that like it felt like a nine inch nails video <laughs> uh like every i feel like every movie during this time had that that type of intro and then you have this this scene they explain what's going on with the uh what was it called? The Judas? Is that what was it called? The Judas strain or something? It was like the Judas. The Judas breed? Something. Breed, yeah, maybe that's what it was. So you have this, and they're introducing it to take out the cockroaches that are have, that have this disease that's killing all of these, these people. And then you cut to three years later, and then you have these like two two kids that, you know, find some, find some bugs and they go and they visit Mira Sorvino who plays the, the head scientist, Susan Tyler. And the first thing I noticed she's, so she's showing these kids around her lab and she's telling them about termites and colonies and how that all works with the soldiers and stuff. And then of course we're like, this is all foreshadowing. Like this is all, you're not telling the kids this information. You're telling us, you're telling the audience about this, but I couldn't help but notice how handsy she was with the kid. (laughs) I don't know if you noticed that, but she would like grab him and like move him around and like jerk him. Yeah. Jerk him across the room. And I'm just like, what is happening here? Why is she being so handsy with this kid? I thought that was a really odd thing that, that she was just really manhandling this, this child which was sort of a theme of this movie. There's a lot of child death going on in this movie. It seems like the target of the mimics is like, they're really going after kids in this, but I guess that's sort of a, that's sort of a Guillermo del Toro thing. He likes to have the, uh, the innocence of children in his movies. If we're still uh, keeping track of the two levels in movies, these kids, 
they they say some they say some fun things. Oh yeah, two two levels are pretty solid in this. Uh, the the reason I didn't mention any kind of two levels in the other movies is that there really wasn't, there wasn't. too much. There was there was some two to be had in Steel, but mm-hmm. it wasn't really. It didn't feel very indicative of the decade. It just felt like sort of generic kid kid dude. Nothing nothing too. Yeah, but nothing really but, worth but talking here, about. But here, the, the the kids say some fun things. They do, they do. Uh, and this is a rated R movie too, so they're they're allowed to say some yeah some more risque bits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the these bugs, these these creatures that have this stuff that kills the cockroaches, they're only supposed to be alive for 120 to 180 days, and they're all female. So you. you you have some Jurassic Park elements going on in this because three years later you come to find that somehow they're breeding, they're they're evolving because you were the scientists were messing with the genetics of these creatures. They evolve at like a super rapid rate, so they're surviving and they're evolving, and they're getting pretty big, getting pretty big. One thing that. I noticed with this movie is that it it is one of the many movies of the nineties that had the green and black, uh, cover. Mm -hmm. I feel like green and black was like a huge trend in movie posters and just movies in general. You had like, there was this and there was phantoms that came out in 98. You had species in 95, 13th floor, uh, ghost in the machine, the matrix, these are all movies that really embraced the black and green and spawn too, actually. Yeah, it, it, it's especially relevant to this uh, maybe notion of the, the, the science fiction motif of this unknown but highly developed network of the the other, the the un the unknown threat. So you have these sort of unsettling color schemes that you say there's something threatening, but you don't know what it is. And it felt, I think with the black and green, it feels oddly futuristic. You know, you also have the net too, which I think had that same style, the black and green. It it all feels very cyber for some reason when you have that. Uh, there's a lot of slime in this movie. As would be a lot expected. Of, yeah. A lot of movies during this time utilized slime and this movie is chock full of slime, which is used to really great effect. Um, I thought that the, the creature design and the creature work uh, in this movie was pretty outstanding. Definitely. And this is a movie that uh, I did not see in the theater because it was rated R. I did rent the movie though. I was allowed to rent it when it, came out on video and uh, I really, really liked it back then. And rewatching it now, I would say uh, it, it holds up pretty well. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed it uh, this time around quite a bit. The, the one thing that I was a little concerned about was the CG because I remembered that there was some CG work done with the, the mimics and so I was a little worried about that, but I will say that the CG work in this is actually done very well. Yeah, I'd say it's pretty. I, I, 
I think it holds up really well. There's there's one scene that looks maybe a little bit iffy when it it actually flies and picks up Mira Sorvino and sort of carries her through the subway a, tunnel. That was a tad much, but otherwise it does work pretty well. It fits in relatively seamlessly. Yeah, I think that uh, Del Toro makes good use of lighting in this to help add to the, not only add to the ambiance of the, the film, but to make it look more convincing, make all of the creature effects look more convincing. The mimics are always sort of shrouded in in shadow and darkness. I mean, most of this movie takes place in subway tunnels. So it's pretty much dark the whole time. Mm-hmm. Which uh, I think is, I think that it all worked pretty well. I, re- I actually really like this movie. Um, I often get this one mixed up with Phantoms because I feel like they came out sort of around uh, the same time on home video. See, back then, movies that would come out, m- there wouldn't be this sort of quick turnaround. Like now, a movie leaves theaters and it's on VOD or Blu-ray or digital uh, like a week later, maybe. Yeah, and you but even have like those cases of like the movies with like extreme legs that are just going and going and going where they don't even wait. They just have their date and then it's out on yeah. there even if it's still playing in a handful of theaters. Yeah, Back then, uh, it would be like six months or a year before a movie would come out on video. It was a very, very long turnaround time for that. And I, if I remember correctly, Relic and, or, sorry, uh, Mimic and Phantoms came out around the same time on home video. And I would, I would always get them mixed up. Phantoms was the Ben Affleck one. I want to revisit that, actually relatively soon because i remember liking that one a lot too although it wasn't as good as mimic and then there was the relic which also gets get that mixed up with them too there's just so many just so many of these movies Uh, it's interesting looking at this now because this was the first guillermo del toro film that i saw and revisiting it now having seen pretty much all of his other movies. Uh, you can definitely see shades of, of where he's headed and his style in this movie, which I think is, is pretty interesting. Oh, absolutely. It's just the idea. It's just like the whole visual is all visual palette is evolving very rapidly, even just throughout this uh, movie from scene to scene. It is, I guess where where would this be? Would this be like the second or third feature? It's it's very visually accomplished for like a fairly early on work. Like you definitely had a strong idea of it's it's his second feature. So this really? came out, yeah. So this came out after Kronos. Mm-hmm. He did he did a couple short films and he did some TV stuff, but. Yeah, this was his second feature. I, I think it's a pretty solid second feature. I thought that it was it's a really good, fun creature feature. I like the there's this extended sequence where they're sort of trapped in a subway car and to help keep the the mimics away, they have to essentially gut one of them and then like 
rub the the slime and guts all over themselves and all over the windows of the subway car. That was very <laughs> that was very efficiently accomplished. Yes, very very gross scene, but I liked that whole sequence of them being trapped and trying to figure out. Okay, we got to get the power back on and delegating who's going to go out and and do do it. And then you have Charles S. Dutton mm-hmm. who. It plays an MTA worker who sustained a leg injury, gets stuck by one of them. Good performances all around, too. I mean, you had Josh Brolin in here, and uh, Mira Sorvino was was pretty solid in this, too. Now, this, I feel like we, we should talk about this. This was the movie that mm-hmm. ended up getting her blacklisted yeah. due to the whole uh, Harvey Weinstein thing. Mm-hmm. And if you're wondering if that, really happened i think all you have to do is look at her filmography to know like there were factors that that were involved there that were preventing her from getting work because there's there's just no way i mean she won an oscar yeah you look at this she's coming right (laughs) off the oscar she is really good in this uh like just the fact that she does if you just look at her from filmography hits that wall you're immediately especially i guess maybe Hindsight's twenty twenty, but just looking at it, you should you should you should have immediately been more thinking about hey, what happens there? What happens right around Mimic coming right off of the Oscar of why she's not going anywhere? And Mimic is uh, this is a Miramax film, so yeah. we know yeah, that the- that Weinstein was involved in in this one, and uh, yeah, it's it sucks because she is really good in this, and it sucks that that happened it's it's really awful uh now there were two sequels to this that came out i did watch them in preparation for this i'm not really going to get into them they're pretty bad i'll I would, say that i would imagine i the the second one is essentially more of the same uh they evolve further so they look uh, more like people in the second one uh, nobody from the original one is in it except for uh, the assistant, Alex Karamzi. Is it, by the third one, are they just humans? Is it just humans fighting each other? The third one is really weird. It is essentially a uh, rear window ripoff. Really? So, <laughs> yeah, the third one is about a a guy who is... He has some sort of respiratory illness and it prevents him from leaving the house. So what he does all day is takes pictures of his neighborhood, like from, from his window and his apartment. And he's, so he's just taking pictures of people from across the street and in the building. And he starts to notice some sort of weird goings on with that. And he ends up having his, uh, sister and this this uh, woman he meets sort of investigate and it's just got this really weird rear window vibe to it uh, the music is very Hitchcockian as well and the like all of the title cards and stuff sort of have that vertigo style font and it's so it's really weird it's very strange I suppose there's a yeah you get to a lot of the the low level sequels that don't really feel like sequels and you do suspect that it was just well forcefully yeah. engineered from a completely unrelated script script yeah i mean if you look at the 
the Hellraiser series, most of the later entries in the Hellraiser series were, and these are all Weinstein movies too. So I don't know if it's a, it's a pattern that, that they had over there at uh, Miramax or Dimension, but they uh, would take scripts that they bought for completely unrelated movies and then just rework different elements into them. So part of me wonders if with Mimic 3, they did actually have a completely different movie and just worked in the whole Mimic thing because it does not feel like a Mimic movie at all until towards the end when they introduce those elements into it. Uh, Either way, I would say you do not have to see any of the sequels. I wasn't planning on it. This this one is plenty, and I think that uh, you will you will enjoy this. It's not like they do anything to further along the the lore, <laughs> the mimic lore, or anything. So, yeah, not not necessary. But the first one I think is great. So, I would I would really recommend checking out Mimic, especially now that Del Toro is sort of uh almost a household name these days definitely it, i think it's interesting to see sort of uh where he came from and what is what a strong uh second feature he had i liked chronos a lot but i feel like this one is uh much more polished than chronos it's very it's very admirable it is it does have a lot going on in it that's really compelling not even not just from the aesthetic perspective but just that idea about being able to in retrospect preview a lot of the themes that we now see as hallmarks of del toro and his work yeah and like he it's it seems like he was really trying to develop the characters you know you have this whole um sort of side plot with uh with Mira Sorvino and uh Jeremy Northam who they're they're married they they work together but they're married and they're trying to have a child and they're having trouble conceiving so there's this 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 whole pregnancy plot that that fits into everything as well so i think that i think that he does a really good job of um creating uh these these sort of separate thematic elements that that uh they come together pretty well uh, by the end. I, I mean, it's not it's, it's not a perfect movie. I wouldn't say like it's his best work or anything. I mean, there's a lot of kind of silly stuff that happens definitely in, in this movie. I mean, the uh, we didn't talk about the kid. There's this kid who is, uh, I believe, he has autism or something similar where he can mimic uh sounds so like he'll hear people walking by and he'll use his these spoons to mimic how they're walking and then he can also like identify people's shoes and the size of them and all of this stuff uh it's a that is an element of it that i didn't think really worked uh it felt a little goofy to me yeah i would say there are little ticks and things that didn't particularly track, but on the whole, it's 
pretty impressive, especially for uh, a second feature and one made entirely in a different language than the first feature. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Any final thoughts on Mimic? No, I think that's... You covered a lot of what I was going to say pretty well anyway. Okay. There you have it. Uh, Mimic, check it out. I think that's going to wrap it up for this month. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please consider reviewing us on iTunes, since this is a new show, your review will go a long way and it is much appreciated. Let us know what year you think we should cover in September by sending us a message on Twitter or Facebook at 90sPod, by sending us an email at feedback at filmpulse.net or by visiting our subreddit at savebythe90s.reddit.com. For Ken Bakley, my name's Adam Patterson, and this has been Saved by the 90s. Bye, everyone. <laughs>